This is David Premer, author of Sell the Way You Buy, a modern approach to sales that actually works even on you. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, and thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message indicating you're a listener so I won't mistake you for a spammer and ignore you, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. I do this podcast to help me and my listeners keep up with the latest ideas that matter most in the quickly changing and somewhat overwhelming world of modern marketing and sales. My day job is running a marketing agency that helps manufacturers and industrial companies grow their revenue. To learn more about the problems we solve and how we do it, visit salesartillery.com. All right, enough yakking. Let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome David Premer to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his book, Sell the Way You Buy, a modern approach to sales that actually works, even on you, published by Page Two. David Premer is an expert in the area of sales and sales leadership and has been published in the Harvard Business Review, MIT Sloan Management Review, as well as Forbes Entrepreneur and Inc. magazines. He has led top-performing sales teams at high-growth startups and is a former VP of Salesforce, where he created the Sales Leadership Academy program. Often referred to as the sales professor, David helps organizations drive revenue growth, people development, and winning cultures by infusing the core principles of science, empathy, and execution into their sales operations. He's also an adjunct professor at the Smith School of Business at Queen's University and Interesting fact, he earned an undergraduate degree in chemistry and later pursued graduate work in chemical engineering and at the University of Toronto built computer models to help the scientific community understand the movement of toxic contaminants in urban areas for which he was awarded a master's degree. Professor Primer, congratulations on Sell the Way You Buy and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. (laughs) It was a great introduction. Great to be with you, Douglas. Thanks for having me. So understanding the movement of toxic contaminants, you know, there's a lawyer joke in there somewhere. (laughs) The real joke is when I was in my undergrad, one of the the kind of, I guess, accreditations I got was I became a certified meteorologist because I was kind of a combined chemistry, atmospheric science degree. And so, of course, years later, being a sales leader, let all of the jokes about forecast accuracy start start to fly. That's where I get the most, uh, you know, the most trouble from uh, from people who know know the background. Yes, and uh, but it's interesting because I have interviewed over the years some authors of sales books, and several have engineering backgrounds. 
Well, in fact, one of them was Mark Roberge, who endorsed your book from uh, who used to be with HubSpot on his book, The Sales Acceleration Formula. Uh, several Naval Academy graduates who went into sales, and you know they used to run nuclear-powered uh, submarines, and now they're doing this. So there are a number of engineers, uh, and, and there's even more than that, uh, who have have gone into sales, which I find very interesting and 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 fascinating. Now I should mention one listener, Harrison Lombard from the Boston area is who I found out about this book from. So to all the listeners, if you know of a great book, please let me know about it, um, because those are always uh, good recommendations, and he put us in touch. Uh, So Harrison, thanks very much, and if I can get your address, I'm going to mail you a small thank you uh, in the mail. And I mentioned uh, Mark Roberge, and uh, five of the people who endorsed your book, I've had the honor of interviewing, so I was very excited to see several uh, familiar names there. And then you talked about some other books that have also been on the show or that are just so so well known. Now, I should explain for the new listener why there is a sales book on the Marketing Book Podcast. And I think over the last 300 or so interviews, there's been at least 50 books about sales. Now, the reason why, or there's a couple reasons, but one is the best marketers have a deep understanding of sales. They have a, a great understanding of what their salespeople are trying to accomplish. They also have a deep insights into the problems and the challenges that their customers have when they're buying from them. But almost everything we're going to talk about anyway is going to be relevant <laughs> to a marketing person. So <laughs> I, I just love anything that has the intersection of uh, uh, marketing and sales. And this is one of those books. It just ties it all together uh, very well. So let me just read a, an excerpt. Uh, from the beginning and get into a few of the really big points from the book that just fascinated me and I think uh, would be very helpful for the listener. You write, in this book, we will explore the key functional areas that modern salespeople need to master in the battle for customer attention and revenue. And it doesn't matter whether you sell software, cars, personal training lessons, or simply your ideas. As we look to introduce and reinforce tactics that help us align our sales motion with the way we ourselves buy, we will give consideration to three elements across each approach, science, empathy, and execution. So, David Primer, take us back to that epiphany you had as a sales leader uh, that ultimately led to this book. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, it's funny, you mentioned Mark Roberge, and I'm, I'm a big fan of Roberge, and, and engineers in general, you asked, you know, why do so many of them end up in sales? Is because I feel engineers are used to dealing with lots of variables and complex systems and trying to explain things. And there is no bigger, if I can call it, chew toy for the brain than sales as a profession, because it's so nuanced and it changes so much. And so that's kind of where we start. And so kind of why I got into sales in the first place by accident, right? Like that's, that's how all we, we all end up in sales was because of this curiosity at the turn of the dot-com boom. And as I kind of was a sales in the sales motion, being a sales observer for so many years, I was taught to do things by my leaders who are great and I respected. They were lovely people. And I found like over the course of the years, the way people bought changed based on the way you know people um, you know access information and the way they interact with you know sellers and so on and I found that a lot of the things that I was doing that my sales motion were kind of inconsistent with the ways that I was buying in normal everyday life. And, you know, I would go out on the sales floor and tell my sales teams to go, you know, make the calls. There's never been a better time to buy. Hustle, hustle, hustle. And and do all these things that were not unethical and they were not categorically ineffective. 
But then I would go back to my desk and I would be inundated with people trying to sell me things, right? Because I'm a VP of sales at my company. And, and what I realized was none of those tactics were working on me. So that was kind of the little epiphany I had, which was like, hold on a second. Am I, am I really selling the way I buy here? I'm going out and telling my reps to do these things that are not working on me. And I, I feel like that's actually a, a big challenge that so many modern sellers have is that they go out there and they use tactics that someone told them to use, even though it's against their better judgment. And that's where, kind of where the initial epiphany came from. Well, why do so many sellers still use old, outdated tactics? Is it because they're being told to? Partially, it's because they're being told to. And, and it's, you know, the, the, the first chapter of the book I refer to as the Cobra Kai paradox. So I'm, yes. you know, I'm 45 years old. I grew up when I was nine. This is when in 1984, the Karate Kid came out. And, uh, and now that, you know, the Karate Kid's had a resurgence. And the way I kind of think of it is very similar. P- people are familiar with the Cobra Kai reference to the Cobra Kai, where you have these kids who are not bad kids. You know, kids don't start out being bad. But when they learn from the wrong sensei, they can become corrupted. And they don't think anything of it. They just think, well, this is how it is, right? And then they have an epiphany at some point in the future where they say to themselves, oh, yeah, maybe I shouldn't have done that. That that probably wasn't the right way. And so I feel like that's what we find in the modern sales world is that, yes, we're use these tactics, not by bad people, just by people who, uh, you know, who, who have been taught by their sensei to do the same. But part of the other challenge that the, the, the way we buy in a way is, is timeless and has and is very uh, progressive and changed so much. So I mean, timeless. The way humans make purchasing decisions or decisions in general has been consistent, you know, for years and years and decades and you know thousands of years. And yet now in the modern buying era, when customers have access to all sorts of information and insights and perspectives and peer you know reviews and so on, things they didn't have before, you have this kind of you know confrontation between the old school and the new school. And this is where the disconnect comes in. We use these tactics because someone told us to do it. We didn't stop to ask why. And yet the way customers buy today, they still use that primitive brain, but layered on top are all of these brand new tools. And these things just don't compute. And that's why, you know, the, the modern kind of, I would say like the sales profession is undergoing a bit of a renaissance now. Mm-hmm. There was one line I want you to explain uh, where you say today, modern buyers have access to so much information that when it comes to poor experiences with subpar salespeople, complacency has given way to natural selection. <laughs> Explain what you mean there. Yeah. Well, I mean, so nowadays, if you want to, you know, you I, you, I want to go buy a kitchen grater, right? For my a box grater for my kitchen and I go on Amazon and there's like a million kitchen graters. So I have, you know, and the same thing happens with appliances or cars or software. And so there's unprecedented choice. And because one of the other concepts I talk about is this idea that the experience is the product. And maybe we'll get into that discussion. The experience the customer has with you is the product. If I have a crappy experience with a sales rep, I'm just going to move on and go on to another another solution. And I'll tell you, I, uh, I run a sales leadership meetup group as well. And one of the things that sometimes gets bounced around the group are conversations about the technology that they use in their sales stack. And so I, I won't mention the names of the technology, but one of the sales leaders piped up at a meeting once and said, has anyone ever, uh, yeah, you ever used this solution or are you looking at this solution? And someone said, oh yeah, I, I did. But you know what? The rep that was selling it to me was was horrible. And I just, I just hung up the phone and, and they, and they said, Oh, was that, you know, such and such. And the, the other leader says, yes, that was the same one. And so the idea is that it doesn't matter how good your product is. Mm-hmm. If you have a bad experience, 
there's so much choice, people will just move on, right? They will ignore your outreach. And that's what I mean by natural selection. There's so much choice, there's so much variety, so many options people have now. I don't have to put up with your crappy sales tactics and they will just move on. Yes, and just to get the attention of some folks, there's on page 10 some great statistics that you you review. You write, uh, according to Forrester, 60% of buyers prefer not to interact with a sales rep as the primary source of information, and 68% prefer to research on their own online. And uh, let's see, they uh, Gartner reports that 65% of customers now spend as much time as they had expected to need for the entire purchase of a solution, just getting ready to speak with a sales rep. <laughs> and the last one I wanted to mention was that um, sales leaders consider their teams to be less effective, uh, let's see, then they much less effective at 16 criteria, 15 of 16 criteria than they were five years ago. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. So when you say there's a bit of a renaissance or a renaissance of certain things are changing, uh, those statistics certainly uh, point to that. Let me ask you to explain another uh, well-written phrase. You, you write, if modern sellers are to be successful in the future, understanding and mastering the why of selling represents the biggest opportunity for growth. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, people often ask, they say, David, do you think, you know, sales is an art or is it a science? And I say, look, it's a combination of both, but that's not even the most important thing. The most important thing is what you just read, Douglas, which is the why. So if you consider that any sales interaction is a series of, of complex variables, right? It's it's the thing I said and how I said it and how the customer reacted and my pricing and my product and my website and my organization. All those things kind of come together to produce that sales interaction, right? Those are all the variables that go in and something happens at the end of the day. The customer buys, they throw an objection, they walk away. And, and what I say by the why is that whenever we see the outcome, just like any kind of scientist, we have to look and say, well, why did that happen? Like, why did the cut? When I said it like this, the customer got it and got super excited. When I said it like that, it pissed them off and they walked away. <laughs> You've got a great story about that in the book. <laughs> it's well, the, the fun thing about the book is uh, there's a lot of great, you know, stories from the sales floor. Uh, I don't mention any names, of course, but it's fun to kind of reconnect with the reps who, you know, who those stories came out of. I'm like, you're famous in the book. I told this story. But, um, you know, one of the reps I talk about in the book is, uh, you know, we, we talk about a story, a tactic that we taught the reps to use if, for example, they get an objection. So let's say you get an objection from a customer and they say, you know, hey, Douglas, I'm thinking of going with your product, but, you know, competitor B has a very similar product to you and they're half the price. Like, why, you know, why should I go for you? Now, the tactic that we taught our reps to do was this kind of reverse psychology tactic where we basically go to the customer and say, hey, look, you know what? Maybe maybe our product isn't right for you. Maybe the spending half the price for product B is, is a better choice. I guess my question to you is, why wouldn't you go, you know, buy product B? Is it, do you think it would be a good fit for you? And we kind of have this very nice and empathetic discussion. Which and, was and the nice way to the say nice that. Way. The nice way. That's the nice <laughs> way. Hey, listeners, that was the correct way to do that it. Was, yeah, well, I want to show you how to do it right first. Right. But, so he, but then here's the problem. So, so, the, so the bad way is the, the rep goes to the customer and says, oh, well, why don't you just go buy competitor B then? Right. <laughs> you know, 
jerk. Now I'm just I'm being a little facetious here, but that's the tone, right, that they use. And that's then how it was ha- received. <laughs> that's how it was received. And then what happens is the customer. What what actually happened in that scenario is the customer got all pissed off and said, "Hold on, hold on a second. Why are you telling me to go buy your competitor? You don't want my business anymore." And it and it precipitated a conversation. It got escalated to me where I was like two levels up with the customer. And you know when I asked the rep and I say, "Well, what what happened?" And, and the rep says. Well, isn't that what you told us to do when the customer starts you know, talking about price? And I realized that the tactic itself was sound, but it was the back to the execution. It was the tone. It was the it was the way that the tactic was delivered. And that's what I mean by examining the why. Why did the customer get pissed off? Was it the wrong tactic? No, the tactic was good. You just did it wrong, right? And and there you have a confused rep wondering why the customer was angry with them. And so that's what I mean. Really examining, not just one example, but there's lots of examples when customers make decisions and the interaction turns a certain way. Really ask yourself, well, why did that happen? Right. And by measuring and following a system, uh, you're able to identify those things. Again, back to the engineering thing. <laughs> it's like yeah. uh, someone with a mechanical engineering degree, I think they, they would probably do really well in sales as well because they're so used to, like you said, looking at all the different variables and asking why. So, well, I also don't want you, I don't want people to think that, oh, yeah, you can always deduce your way back to the, you know, like one of the things that, that people always give meteorologists a hard time about is they say, like, well, you know, why is the weather report always wrong? Right. Why is it always wrong? And one of the if you want to know why, one of the reasons why weather reports, I say always wrong, it can be far off is because all the equations that govern the movement of, you know, wind and particles and, and atmospheric conditions and so on have so much error built into them that when you run all of those equations through a computer model, what happens is all of those little margins of error uh, combine. And so you can run a weather forecast for this afternoon and you'll get a really good, clear answer. You could still run that same forecast for a week out, but all of those variables are going to compound and you're going to get something that you know is could be very, very far off. So the same thing happens in sales. There are so many variables some of which we can control. We can control our tone. We can control you know, the, our pricing and the way we present things. But maybe the person that you're speaking to, your customer, had a fight with their spouse that morning, right? Now they're going toe-to-toe with you and you're having some kind of discovery or negotiation. You can't control that, right? So there's so many, ver- so I don't think you can always deduce it back to you know, uh, you know, level one per se, but um, you, you have to ask why. And, and if you keep asking why, you'll get better. Well, and there's a lot of uh, people not even asking why the first time. Uh, for instance, after a, a let's say a deal closes, whether you won or lost, it seems to me like a lot of companies don't even go through that additional step of well, why why did we not win? <laughs> it's true. Well, you know what? Even in the you know one of the things that I teach at, at the university is uh, sales leadership, and one of the things that when we're giving people, one of the biggest challenges is we often don't give our people enough positive feedback to replicate the positive behavior that we saw. And when they do something we don't like, we don't give them enough feedback to stop it. And so you're totally right. When we see something good happen on the sales floor, to the extent that we can understand what we did that was so good so that we can replicate it again, that's obviously what we want to do. The challenge is oftentimes we don't we don't stop to you know figure that out. Right. Well, just changing the subject. So you could become a television weatherman if you wanted to? 
Technically, yes. Yeah, I'll tell you, there was two people in my program. A shout out to my friend, uh, Chris Scott. Chris, um, we, it was just the two of us in that program in undergrad. He went on to go to Michigan University, got a master's in atmospheric science, and now he's the chief meteorologist at the Weather Network here in Canada. So shout out to Chris. I went to visit Chris a couple years ago. So years after we, we graduated, he put me in front of the green screen. So I had my day, you know, on, on camera just for fun. But uh yeah, I don't think meteorology is going to be in my future anytime soon. <laughs> okay, that's great. That's great. Well, I don't understand these people that are angry at the weather people on TV. You know, they're doing their best, and they're generally rather attractive people, and they seem very <laughs> friendly. So lighten up, folks. There's a, there's a lot of uh, variables going on there. So let's talk about the battle for customer attention. Now, whenever I've you know been selling my you know, services to my small firm, uh, my biggest competition is no decision. <laughs> Explain why uh, inertia is the enemy of sales. Yeah, well, look, the way I kind of think about it, right, is that when a customer has an interaction with you and they're thinking about buying something from you, I say, look, sales, sales and marketing are in the same boat. Someone passes by your website, you know, and, and whether they convert or not, there's three things that happen. Ultimately, they buy your product, they buy a competitive product, or they do nothing. Right, I would put, you know, uh, building it themselves or doing something themselves, and that they solve the product, they solve the problem another way. That's kind of in that competitive bucket category. Mm -hmm. But if you were to look at the amount now, hopefully, if you're in sales and marketing out there, hopefully you're tracking when you're tracking your opportunities. Hopefully you're tracking uh, the, you know, when you lose a deal, great. When you win a deal, um, and when you lose a deal, hopefully you're tracking why you lost that deal. Was there a reason? Did you lose it to a competitor? Did the client decide to do nothing? Did they ghost on you, never call you back? And I have millions and millions of dollars of pipeline data that I've seen personally that tells me that the amount of deals that you lose to the do nothing, dead, no decision status quo are orders of magnitude greater than what you're losing to a competitor. So oftentimes we do focus on competitors in certain industries. I get it. There's a lot of you know competitors that, that sweep up a lot of the business. But in general, we lose to status quo. And, and this is something that shouldn't surprise us. Because of this concept of status quo bias, inertia. This is a, if you remember back to your Sir Isaac Newton, Newton's third law of motion, the objects in motion tend to stay in motion and so on. Well, that's what happens. Our customers are, are accustomed to running things the way they typically run them. And unless your solution is is far greater, it, it doesn't have to be just just as good or a little bit better. It has to be way better than what they're doing today to knock them off their game and get them to pay attention. And that's what I mean by inertia. It's a very well-studied status quo bias. We come up with all sorts of reasons why we should just keep doing what we're doing. You know, it's just easier. It's not ideal, but just the pain of switching is is so prevalent in our minds. We're always fearful about moving away from what we have. And that's the real enemy of sales. It's knocking people off their inertia. So what are some of the ways that, before we knock them off that status quo bias, the inertia couch, how can you start to identify that it's maybe a stronger force than they're letting on? Well, you know, I you know, first of all, like systemically, you can measure it, right? When if you're looking at your opportunities and you're storing them in your CRM and so on, you can see how many deals you're losing to customers that ghosted you. So that's kind of, you know, the first thing. The second thing is, you know, figuring out, okay, well, what has to happen in order to get people to move? You know, I love the uh, kind of the, the Dan Pink terminology of like selling is really just about moving people from one position to the next. So that's the first part is identifying like, yes, th that status quo bias does exist. You know, as a seller or marketer, you can also interview customers. 
as well. Just have conversations. What do you do today? Like what's going so well with that? You know, what would what would have to happen in order for you to to make a change? But also like just look in your personal, you know, everyday life. You know, one of the examples I often give to people is I say, you know, do you have something in your closet that the person that you live with has encouraged you to get rid of because you don't wear it or you don't use it anymore? We all have these things. In fact, you know, one of the, the greatest examples I've heard to, to kind of help identify that status quo bias is, is to take a look at something you have in your closet, or if you're doing inventory of the things you have, and ask yourself, would you pay to buy that thing brand new if you didn't already own it? And and the answer for most of us is we have tons of stuff that we would not pay again to own if we didn't already own it, but we just, right. we still have it. And customers have that as well, that that baggage. Interesting, interesting. And for a moment there, I thought you were talking about, uh, metaphorically, about what's in, in my closet. So... <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's say somebody has determined, all right, we, we actually have to do something about it. I'll give you an example. Um, s- a Sunday, my 30-year-old water heater down in the cellar finally died. I was not aware that they're not supposed to last that long, but regardless. <laughs> yeah. So it didn't have water, hot water for a while, and uh, so I kind of needed to, <laughs> to get that fixed. And uh, we got it all squared away this week, so I... I determine that, yes, this is suddenly a priority <laughs> at the what house. Yeah. yeah. And my neighbors wanted me to, you know, resume bathing. So anyway, it worked out well for everyone. So let's say we've moved on. We, we determined we've got to do something about that. Explain uh, the following, a, a, another, just a gem. You say one of the biggest misconceptions with which many sellers operate is assuming that customers who have set aside their status quo bias and are now actively seeking out new products, know exactly what they're looking for. Yeah, well, it's funny. You know, I was going to say with your hot water heater situation, the real challenge would have been, let's say I called you, you know, a month ago and tried to sell you that the same hot water heater without the pain of having your hot water heater broken, mm-hmm. right? How, how would I have done that? Well, I don't know because you would have I said, well, I don't know. It's been there 30 years. <laughs> yeah, probably last last long. Like I've gotten all the value I've gotten out of it. I might as well just wait and see. You yeah, know, what, what happens at the end of the day? So, but that's the real trick is that when people are in pain, and I actually refer to this in the book, and we, we can get to it later on. We talk about selling band aids, right? It's easy to sell someone a band aid if they have a cut and they're bleeding and they're you know they're walking around the house looking for a band aid. It's harder to sell someone a band aid when they don't even know that they're in pain. Yes, and so that's really the trick. Is, is helping people understand that, no, no, they're actually in a worse off situation than they might think um, so that they're more receptive to your message. But, you know, what I was saying in, in that quote is the idea is that let's say, for example, I have kind of like a, a pain, um, like, let, you know, I'll give you a, a perfect example. So as a business person, uh, you know, as a, as, a, as a small business, I'm probably doing a lot of things in my business that I have no business doing. It's not a good use of my time. You know, I'm billing customers, I'm, you know, filming videos, you know, uh, editing them, you know, that that's not probably a good use of my time. But I'm walking around, I know I have this problem, but I'm not really doing anything about it. Until someone comes along and says, David, I work with tons of small business owners like you who realize they are spending tons of time on things that are an absolute waste. Would, would, it, would you be interested in having a conversation? I think I might be able to help. And I would be like, where do I sign up? Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Because the idea is I have this pain. It's kind of in the back of my mind. It's not at the forefront. As human beings, we actually, if we had to subject ourselves to all of the pains and challenges that exist in the world and that exist in our you know, personal business lives, we wouldn't be able to function. So what we do is we put up the blockers and the blinders. It's a concept called abstraction, where we just kind of compartmentalize everything. 
and that's kind of the idea is that you know when 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 a seller or a marketer is trying to connect with us, they have to like dig deep and start really poking at that bear of our of our pains and fears and kind of these latent things that they want to get us to act. Hmm. So, in your experience, though, I guess I was surprised by that that one quote I just read. A lot of salespeople think that let's say it's like an inbound lead or it's like me calling up a company saying, "Hey, I'm I'm calling about getting a new water heater." Uh, do do more people think that I know exactly what I'm looking for? I guess you know. In this last week, it was all I went through this whole sales process. It was funny to be reading your book <laughs> while I was going through this fast and furious <laughs> process of of being a customer and having people try to sell to me. Um, and and I guess I think there were a lot of people that basically wanted me to tell them exactly what I wanted, and well, yeah. I didn't know. <laughs> Well, you might think, because you've had this thing for 30 years, and you're thinking to yourself, okay, like I just need a new version of that, right? And you may not realize that they don't make a new version of that anymore. Like, in fact, now they're all like electric and space age and, you know, and more uh, energy efficient. Yeah, there's a gas-fired tankless water heater outside my house now. I didn't even... <laughs> it was like getting right. broadband 20 years ago. It's like, was no one going to tell me about this modern technology? So, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know what I was looking for. I just needed some hot water. So, well, I'll, t- I'll tell you, like even you know, in the in the technology space, for example, there are some great pr- uh, platforms out there, like uh, conversational intelligence, revenue intelligence platforms, like like Gong. Have you he- have you heard of Gong? Before? Yes, and yeah. uh, their their research you mentioned. Uh, now that's where people can uh, listen to uh, the sales manager can listen to the interviews. Is that right? Yeah, like it's basically an AI bot that listens to all of your customer calls and produces all sorts of, you know, analytics and insights and perspectives and graphs and charts. It's really, you know, it's a really great platform. I mean, I'm not not, not plugging it, but I'm just, I'm giving you an example of a, a kind of technology. And, and look, I'm a, I'm a fan of Gong. They do some great research and I, I talk yes. about it in the book. Because once you start listening to, this is actually the beauty. Once you start listening to all of these sales calls, you can actually start, you know, correlating things that are said and how they're said and when things get brought up with actual sales results. Mm-hmm. And so some of these things are actually surprising and counterintuitive because they go against what we've you know historically been taught. But I give this example to say, I would say about half of my clients use a gong, like a conversational revenue intelligence platform or something similar, um, but half of them do. And the other half don't know that those technologies even exist. It's like a splitting the atom to them when you explain that these things have been out. And these have been out for like years already, mm-hmm. right? And so now if you're, again, now you're you're making the assumption if you're marketing to customers that they know what these platforms do and 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 how you can help them. And they're, and they're in the market looking for them and shopping. Some customers don't even know that your solution exists. And this is especially prevalent now in the modern era where there's so many different solutions and so much nuance and the bar to create new solutions is so much lower, right? There's people inventing stuff all the time. You can't assume that people know, first of all, what they want. Second of all, can articulate it to you. There's a, a quote in the book from uh, Jeff Bezos. I think this was at, you know, I, I think it was the, maybe it was the 2019 um, uh, shareholder report where he said, look, he was talking about the Amazon Echo device. And he said, look, if someone asked you, would you like an always on kind of black can of Pringles that sat on your desk that told you, well, you know, when the weather, well, you know, what the weather was going to be like and uh, change the channels on your TV, would you say, hey, look, I need that? Like, no one's going to ask for that. Mm-hmm. Right. So you need to do the, you need to do the listening and to really, future to your customers. And in fact, that's what the best salespeople, this is some of the the research I talk about from Gartner, CEB, is that the best salespeople, sales and marketing teams, they bring the future 
to their customers because they don't assume that the customers are sitting back knowing exactly what they want and they know exactly what to ask for, even if they've done all this research. Right, right. So you write that leading your customer through the sea of sameness to their purchase decision is rewarded, <laughs> richly rewarded. So let's get into the mind of that of that buyer. And I want to read on page 51, uh, you have this question that you always ask when you're doing your training. And I'm going to read it, and I want you to explain why you ask it and what happens. You write, you'll say to folks, when a customer evaluates a bunch of solutions and ends up purchasing one, how often do you think they buy the solution that is truly best for them? So what what kind of response do you get from folks, and, and how did you settle on that question? Oh, my goodness. This is... This is the cornerstone of a huge, huge concept that I talk about all the time, but huge in sales and marketing, which is that, you know, I call it the solution fit paradox. People don't do the best things for them. And the example I give, you know, in the book is, yes, when you look at what a customer eventually purchased when they were kind of, you know, let's say you, you went to go buy a car or you went to go buy a piece of software, you did your whole due diligence, and maybe you decided to, to get car A, car B, uh, maybe you did nothing. And the question is, if you were an independent auditor, you're like Deloitte or KPMG, or you were brought in just to make this decision, did Douglas make the best decision for him, best defined objectively, what percentage of the time? You know, and again, I say, don't you don't care about the customer, you don't even care about the vendor, what percentage of the time? The, the most common answer I get typically ranges between 20 and 40%. And if you want to bring this home for you personally, think about the answer to the question of, if I asked you to write down everything that you ate for lunch, in the last month. And then I told you I was going to take that list and show it to your doctor. And I was going to ask your doctor, what percentage of the time did Douglas, now Doug, you may be, I know you're a military guy, maybe you're, you're probably really healthy, but what percentage of the time did this person eat the best thing for them for lunch? Best defined as calorically, food groups, portion size. Yes. The number gets lower probably than when you're talking about a car or a piece of software. Uh-huh. And the, the reason is we don't do the best things for us, but we always do the things that we feel are right. And and so the idea is that, you know, whatever you ordered for lunch or made for lunch, you probably weren't unhappy with it. You know, you're probably happy with it, even though it wasn't the best thing for you. You get home at the end of a long day and you say to yourself, you know what? You know what I deserve? I've had a, I've had a hard day at work. And you say to yourself, you know what I deserve? What do you deserve, Douglas? Uh, a break, something that makes me feel good. Yeah, like well, and usually when you say, "Well, what what makes you feel good?" When you say at the end of a day, "What what do I deserve?" Oh, I don't know, a treat or a glass of a Cabernet Sauvignon or a cigar. I don't know. There you go. Well, look, the things that you name, I'm just going to say, would probably fall on the side of like not the best for you, and <laughs> and you know, objectively speaking, objectively yes. speaking, yes. I you know, I would say go for a walk, have a salad, do a yoga class, but that's not what you crave. And so the idea is that we don't do the best things for us. We do the things that we feel. And so I want salespeople and marketing people to understand, and, and that's why I ask this question: What percentage of the time? When a customer, you know, buy, makes a decision at the end of the sales cycle, even if that decision is to buy your product, what percentage of the time would you say that was the best objective decision for them? And the and the answer is not the majority of the time, right? And so the question then becomes, well, that's the way we buy. We make decisions primarily based on feelings. Yes. Right. Right. And that's the big epiphany. So when we look at our sell and marketing motions, what do we what do we typically do? We focus on ROI and let's help you build this business case. And this this makes the most sense. But if that was the case, 
we would all be like eating food pellets and, and, you know, shopping at, you know, bargain stores because those clothes provide thermal protection and coverage just like the expensive ones do, Mm -hmm. right? We buy things that we feel are the best fit for us. And that's the thing that sellers and marketers need to get in tune with. Yes, and you, you led up to it beautifully in the book where you wrote, if most of the time, or it begs the question, if most of the time we don't make decisions that are objectively the best for us, just what the heck are we basing these decisions on? Are we making decisions based on false promises and lies? Are we making best guess decisions based on the limited amount of information we have available? What are we basing decisions on? And that then leads into feelings. And uh, I just, I loved it. I think it's, uh, you know, again, one of the one of the best parts of the book and and big implications for salespeople and, and, and marketing folks. But let me ask, you just mentioned, I think, ROI, okay? Mm-hmm. Why do you argue that one of the biggest mistakes sellers make when positioning their solutions is confusing investment or return on investment with value? Absolutely. Well, you know, and it's funny because as a sales leader, we are conditioned to go out and tell our teams, go sell value, go sell, call the customer and sell value. And when we do that, what we're really saying, if I were kind of like, I always think of the golf commentators, you know, off to the side, they're like, okay, so he's asking the team to sell value. And like, what does that mean? It means that we're going out and we're telling our customers, spend money with us, buy stuff from us, because if you do, you're either going to make more money or save more money than what you're spending on us. That's what we mean by sell value. But that's not value. That's return on investment. That's like a it's a business case, right? And we know that if people people don't buy based on business cases, people buy based on feelings. And in fact, I, I don't know. I don't know if, if um, uh, the, the sales and marketing audience here has had any experience uh, putting together business cases for customers or business case calculators. And I, I know I've been on the the delivering end of many a business case mm-hmm. in my time. And sometimes you put together the numbers. You say, okay, we're going to charge the customer this much. And here's the assumptions that we're going to make that, you know, they do this process this many times and it's going to save them this much time and there's going to be an efficiency gain and da, 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 da. So the ROI is two months. And we say to ourselves, oh, nah, the customer's never going to believe that. That's too fast. Okay, let's change the numbers again. And like, what are we doing? We are now manipulating the business case to do one thing, to make it believable. And the last time I checked, belief was a subjective feeling and not an objective statistic. And so this idea of you know selling value, selling the, the financial return is is important, but value, I kind of describe it if you know you kind of think of like a big circle, ROI which represents value, ROI is like a little circle within that big circle. The bigger circle of value is the discretionary feeling. And the example I give is I say if you're listening to this, think about something that you spend your hard-earned money on that another person would look at and say, that's ridiculous. Why are they spending money on that thing? Mm-hmm. Right? And the reason why you do that is because you value that thing. Even, you know, for example, you go buy something on Amazon, why are there reviews? Like, why are there even five-star reviews, four-star reviews? Like, why are they there? They, they're there, right, to create that social proof because that social proof creates an emotional feeling, right? We, we, we always buy based on emotion. It's the, it's the reason why actually referrals from customers and partners and people like us convert way higher than anything else. Right? It's because it's the feeling, right? And that's really what we crave. So value, ROI, two completely different things that salespeople, marketing people, we always get wrong because we, we focus on the kind of the, the tangible numbers, but that's not at the end of the day what people are buying. They're buying the feeling. Right. Well, let's go a little bit further there. What are some of the primary emotional 
motivators that buyers have? Well, you know, one of the biggest ones is is safety, you know, and, and there's a lot of kind of dimensions around safety. You know, one of the phrases you're probably familiar with is uh, is the one where people say, no one ever got fired for buying IBM. You ever heard that before? No one ever got fired for buying IBM? Yeah, yeah. And you could probably apply it to some other big blue chip things now, like maybe, you know, Microsoft. It's true. Yeah, whatever, you know, whatever industry you're in, you probably have a comparable thing to the, you know, no one ever got fired for buying Xerox or whatever the, you know, the, the big player in the space was. Mm-hmm. But what does that mean? Does that mean that IBM or that big player, in all fairness to IBM, does that mean that they have the best solution? No, it just means that I'm not going to get fired for buying that solution because it's recognized as the industry leader. And so I value safety. Let's say, for example, I'm in the market for IT security software. Maybe I'm in that market because my company had a data breach and my job is on the line, never mind the safety and security of my company, if I don't you know, get this thing done, right? So safety is a huge emotional motivator, right? There's, there's, I talk about it in the book, there's kind of 10 big ones that have been identified through research. Safety, giving me the, the vision of the person who I want to be in the future. You know, I often, we make decisions based on the clothes that we wear, the car that we drive, the job that we want, you know, the, the, the relationships that we have based on the vision of the person that we want to be in the future, right? I want to get that promotion. So I, this is what I need to do. Here's the decisions I need to make. And so, yeah, there's all sorts of emotions that kind of wrap around. And, and it's funny, in the consumer space, marketers do a really good job of tapping into those feelings. So like you see a commercial for a car and let's say the car is geared towards, uh, let's say recent college grads, you have this young, attractive person who's throwing their musical instrument into the back of this little SUV and driving out to the country where there's another attractive person waiting for them and they have this lovely camping expedition and you're watching this and you're thinking to yourself, that's what I want, right? And so they're selling to your emotions. That's really what the what the trick is. So there's all sorts of emotions that you can leverage in, in you know, whatever you're selling, whatever that selling motion is, but that at the end of the day is what people are buying. Well, let's talk about some more feelings. This is becoming very emotional for me, uh, David. <laughs> it, explain why the fear of loss tends to loom much larger than the desire for a similar size gain. And, and, I, and I ask that because I see so often companies and salespeople, marketers, pitching all the great things that are going to happen for you. And this kind of goes back to uh, the Band-Aid and the cut. Absolutely. Well, look, as a, you know, and I, I, I full credit to the genius of uh, Daniel Kahneman uh, and, uh, and his research partner, Amos Tversky, and, their, and the book that Kahneman wrote, um, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, which I reference in my book, and I'm a huge fan of. And he talks about, he pioneered this concept of loss aversion. But the idea is that, that organisms, human beings are conditioned to elevate the threat of losses above the joy and jubilation of experiencing gains. And that's because, like, think about in a very primitive sense, if you're walking down a street in the middle of the night and there's a dark alley, and you say to yourself, should I cut down the dark alley because it's a shortcut home? And you say to yourself, no, you know what? I'm not going to go down that because it's there's a risk, right? It could be dangerous. Those types of people and organisms survive, and they then go on to procreate, and it's a very like biological feeling. If we protect ourselves, then we live longer, and you know it's 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 kind of ingrained into us. And, and organisms, animals, they do the same thing. It's you know the reason why you know back in the in the prehistoric days we valued things like you know hunting and farming because you know we 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 don't want to die. Like that's kind of where it comes from. And so as human beings now, 
you know, even things like they look at, um, you know, gambling. You know, if you go into the casino and you lose a hundred bucks, and then you go into the, you know, and then or you win a hundred bucks, you go into the next night, you lose a hundred bucks. The feeling of losing is a lot more intense, right? And we're actually willing to take greater risks to minimize those losses than to achieve gains. Like that's where the kind of the expression double or nothing comes from. You'd say, you know what, I really don't want to lose, so I'm going to take a massive gamble just for the potential of me not losing. And so it's a very biologically ingrained thing that we have, which is we don't like loss. It's the same reason why actually from a leadership perspective, if you're giving feedback to an employee and you give them a critical piece of feedback, you say, you know, Douglas, I don't know, that last podcast, I don't think you did such a great job. You didn't ask us, you didn't ask that. I hear that a lot. (laughs) But you feel pretty bad. And then the question is, how many good compliments does it actually take for you to get back to neutral. And some some say it's even on the order of magnitude of 10. So it's the same thing, for example, when you go uh, on Amazon and you see, like I was looking at that box grader, right? And it's got like 1,700 reviews, an average of 4.6 stars. And what do I do? I want to see what the people who gave it one or two stars said. Why do I, <laughs> you know, why do I do that? I'll tell you, like Brené Brown, um, you know, talked about this in her net in her, her Netflix special. She said, "You know, does anyone have kids?" She said, "You ever you ever go into the, your kids' bedrooms and just watch them sleep? Like you just sit there and watch them sleep, and you think to yourself, oh, they look so adorable, and how much you love them.'" Yeah. And then she says, "And then what happens next? Do you start thinking about all of the horrible things that could happen to them, and how bad you would feel, and and how you, you would be devastated if those things happen? And that's your brain's way." of protecting you and keeping you safe. So now we pivot back to sales and marketing and this concept of loss aversion. When I sell someone on the pain that they're already experiencing, they will be more likely to move and take action than if I'm just talking about, you know, hey, look, everything's totally fine today, but oh my gosh, if you bought my thing, you would be way ahead in the future. That is not as enticing to people as minimizing losses because it's it's just ingrained to us biologically. Now that is related to why you recommend don't sell solutions, sell problems. Absolutely, yeah. Because you know the customers going back to the point about our customers aren't out there looking for our solutions. Is even if you know our solution, especially if our solution is novel and it's unique and maybe you haven't heard of it before, but they spend a lot of time thinking about the problems that they have. And so if you can touch on that problem, and the trick is the problem should be somewhat unique. You know, if you said, hey, are you tired of paying high fees at your bank? Okay, like everyone says that, right? (laughs) So so it's got to be a little bit unique. And I talk about this Hey, do you want to be happier in life? (laughs) Well, well, you know what? (laughs) That's not helpful. Oh my, don't don't get me, you know what? Here, I'll, I'll lay this on the listeners. We were talking a little bit about discovery questions. I talk about, I don't know if I talk about this in the book, but I talk about it when I train clients. I say, when you're doing discovery with a customer and you're asking them some of these questions, so, hey, would you like this? Would you like that? The worst kind of discovery questions to ask are the ones that are leading, meaning there's only one right answer, right? And you're leading into my trap. And I'll tell you, when I was, we were pregnant with our first child years ago, and we were at this trade show for expectant parents. And I walk by this booth and uh, a fellow tries to draw me in. Oh, excuse me, sir. Can I just ask you a question? And I said, ah, no, no, no I'm not interested because I don't like talking to salespeople, right? So I kind of <laughs> keep, keep, keep walking by. And he said, no, sir, just, it's a one quick question. And then I say, okay, what is it? And he lays on me the word, I will not undersell this, the worst discovery question I've ever been asked, which was. Do you love children? <laughs> no. He said, sir, do you like to save money when you shop? Now, of course, you know, if I say yes, then I'm giving consent 
for him to do all of his sleazy sales things to me. And if I say no, then I'm an idiot. Uh So we don't want to ask those leading questions, right, where we're talking about pain, but the pain should be a little bit not So for example, I'll give you an example. My third startup was we were actually acquired by Salesforce. That's how I ended up uh, working there. So what did we do? We had a feedback coaching and recognition platform. That's that's kind of what the was a piece of software. It's what it was. But we didn't lead with that message. We went to companies and we said, hey, look, you know what? We work with tons of organizations who realize that employees love feedback, but they hate performance reviews. And so what we did there was we invoked an enemy, right? We we talked about it's almost like we invoked this kind of the loss that the customer was already experiencing. They realized at that moment, you know what, shoot, our people do hate performance reviews. Yeah, we hear that all the time. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, why hasn't anyone said this before? And now they're leaning in and saying, well, what do you do? Tell me what you do, right? Like that's the idea is to entice the customer to want to learn more by triggering that kind of that, that sense of loss and how you can help them. And what was interesting is that you said that when you all had like an inbound lead or something, <clears throat> they were asking for better annual performance reviews, and you had to really uh, sort of shift the whole paradigm, <laughs> explain, maybe you shouldn't keep doing those. You should do this instead. Well, it's like you with your water. I'm not want to pick on your water heater, but right, if you just said, oh, I want to get a new water heater, it's kind of the same, the new version of what I have, you would be missing out. And the, the person who works at the, you know, the, the HVAC company would say, did you know, uh, Mr. Burdett, that there's all sorts of new water heating solutions out there that actually might, might even be better. Mm-hmm. And and if you had a requirements list for an old school water heater, you know, this this person would be like, I don't, I don't even know what this is. Like, this is like prehistoric, right? And so what they would try to do then is educate you on, you know, why you would want to kind of move into the future and consider something else. And that's in the world of sales and marketing, that's oftentimes what we're doing. Yeah. Well, let's get into some of those better questions. Uh, you know, your, your story reminds me of a friend years ago, the attorney, he was on a board uh, for a nonprofit and I was quite busy, uh, actually I was on some others. And he call, he's, a, he's a trial lawyer, as a matter of fact, so you better be careful. Okay. <laughs> he called me up, he goes, hey, Doug, let me ask you something. Do you like kids? <laughs> and I knew who I was dealing with, and I said, I like my kids. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. And I was able to uh, then later explain to him, but it was sort of like, uh, I don't think he ever gets cross-examined much. So uh, <laughs> at any rate, you talk about how when it comes to uh, getting your message out, you know, not only to be heard, uh, but to, to resonate. And you talk about the science of persuasion can help modern sellers operate with armor-piercing efficiency <laughs> and convert more uh, customers. I was wondering if you could talk about some of those things that that can do that. I mean, it's it's, it's obvious, but there, there were there was such uh, rich information about well, you know, there's storytelling, there's questions, there's the, the the polarization and juxtaposition. Could you touch on some of those? Because that has big implications for sales that somebody could be making today, uh, as well as all kinds of uh, marketing content. For sure. Yeah. And this is kind of chapter five. We talk about high impact messaging. And, you know, the easiest thing that kind of the first thing I teach people is to think about who your customer's enemy is. Who is your enemy? Like, think about who is your ideal customer? If you close your eyes, who is your ideal customer? What is their persona? What do they look like? What's their level of experience and interest and and knowledge of a product like yours? And then ask yourself, what do they value? Right? What is the discretionary subjective feeling that they look to purchase when they're looking to purchase a solution like yours and think about who their enemy 
would be. So, for example, I, I gave you this example of performance reviews. Yes. Were the enemy. You know, uh, for example, there was a company still exists called Trunk Club. Yeah, based in Chicago. They were actually um, acquired by Nordstrom a number of years back. I talk about this in the book as well. And and what was, you know Trunk Club? You familiar with Trunk Club? I've heard of it. Yeah. So so what is Trunk Club? So if I were just to describe what they do, it's a, it started out as a service, a clothing service for men. And what you would do is if you're a man, you would go and you would put your measurements into the system and say what kind of clothes you like to wear. And they would go out and, and a virtual stylist every month would pick out clothes, put them in a box, ship them to your house. And whatever you like, you keep. Whatever you don't like, you give back. That's what, that's what they did. Mm-hmm. But when I say, well, what does Trunk Club do? What was the marketing pitch? They would say... Well, at Trunk Club, you know, we we work with men who love to dress well, but they hate to shop. Shop, right? Now, if you're a man and you love to dress well and you hate to shop, now you're leaning in and saying, well, tell me, what is this? Tell me more about it, Mm -hmm. right? So that's a really simple mechanism, like picking your customer's enemies. And in the book, I go into detail about here are some examples of things that make good enemies. But there's other things from an armor-piercing, you know, efficiency that you can do, such as, for example, using data. And one of the things that I actually talk about in my practice, I don't even know if it made it into the book, is this concept of uh, denominator neglect. So if you want to, you can Google that, but I'll give you an example. Let's say you have a solution and that solution has the ability to save your customers time. It's, It's some kind of automation. It helps them do whatever. I can describe that time in different ways. I can say this solution will save you 5% of your time every single month. Or I can say this solution will give you back 10 hours every single month. Now, those statistics might be mathematically equivalent, but they are not processed in the same way in the human mind. You can picture what ten, what you would do with 10 hours. 5% of something, that's an abstract concept, right? And so these are small things that you can do in your sales motion, even things like, you know, what I refer to as leading with what you believe. So rather than pitch someone on a product or service, lead with what you believe. And you see this, like the Elon Musks of the world and the Mark Benioffs and the, you know, the, the folks at Apple lead with the product. They lead with the belief. We believe you should be able to run your business from your phone. You know, we believe that people love to buy things, but they hate talking to salespeople. And these beliefs, if they align with the beliefs of your customers, will act in that armor-piercing efficiency to get them to lean in and say, what is this? Tell me more, because you're operating on that emotional wavelength. Yeah, and it was also, I mean, this, of course, popped into my head. Wow, you know, a lot of homepages could be improved by including. Oh, my gosh. Well, instead of saying what we do, you lead with (laughs) uh, the statement or, you know, like I I talked about at the beginning of the interview. I was like, I have some of the statistics about how, you know, sales is suffering. Like, for instance, a marketing agency could say, you know, most of your customers are already – 65% 65% through you know uh, their their purchase journey before they even reach out or some fact i can't remember if it was this section or not but it was really it was so much more persuasive and then you had several examples of that and it was like oh time to slap my head okay so <laughs> well let's move on to the discovery because that's r- so important and it occurred to me that you know if marketers were in a situation where they could listen in on discovery calls you know, and and maybe, uh, or or they could attend one once the the lockdown's over. It would be so helpful to get into their head. And you just wrote that discovery is arguably the single most important part of the interaction we have with our customers. So, why is it the most complex and emotionally nuanced activity in in modern selling? It just it seems like it doesn't have much planning. It doesn't have as much thought. Why is that? 
Yeah, well, I mean, you know, discovery is is both a um, you know it's a it's a noun and it's a verb, and so we engage in discovery with our customers. We don't messaging with our customers. You know, messaging is a component of how we articulate what we do, which feeds into discovery, objection handling, negotiation. They all feed back to this act of having a conversation with another human being. Mm -hmm. And that's what discovery is really all about. Um, and it's also one of these areas where it's all about the the execution. You know, when we talk about messaging, we're talking about, okay, how can we frame what we do in a way that kind of resonates objection handling? It's okay, how do we get around A, B, and C? But discovery is actually where the rubber hits the road, and it combines so many different components of uh, of kind of the modern sales toolkit. So that's it's why like it's actually- a big game. Yeah, that's right. It's the, that's exactly. It doesn't matter what you practice. It didn't matter what was on your website, and so which I totally agree. By the way, with your sentiment of you know what's on people's websites, but yes, absolutely. This idea that this is the human to human conversation, and so many things happen uh, in that. In fact, you know, one of the things for those of you who are reading the book, the discovery chapter is twice as big <laughs> as the as all of the other chapters. And I remember when I was working with the publisher, and I said, I got this chapter. It's like it's tw it's twice as big. Should I bust it up into two more? And they said. Is it the most important part of the sales cycle? And I said, yes, it is. And they said, well, then it deserves twice the space. So, yeah, yeah I mean, discovery is is so nuanced because so many things can happen in that conversation. Yeah, it is a it's a, it is a long chapter, and we can't get into all of that. But um, there was one thing I wanted to pull out of that that I thought was so uh, so interesting, and it had to do with um, there's three types of discovery insights. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, as a marketing guy. Uh, I just immediately think of, wow, you could arm <laughs> your your marketing as well as your sales team with so much of uh, this kinds of information. I was wondering if you could explain these three types of insights, which are known spoken and known unspoken, and then unknown unspoken, which for me sounded like uh, secret sauce. You know, if you can tap into that. Absolutely, yeah. So this is kind of in preparation for the discovery conversation. The idea is to be mindful of the things that could come out in that conversation. Like there's a person standing in front of you or on the Zoom in front of you, and you're having a conversation, and you're thinking to yourself, all right, they're here. Why are they here? And there's certain reasons why they could be there. And I give this example of like the known spoken, which are kind of like the, the table stakes. It's imagine is oh, like imagine the guy at the gym. Yeah. Okay. So let's say you go to the gym, right? This is the example I give and I'm there because I just like want to get in shape. And if I was the trainer, I would say, oh yeah, like I work with people all the time who come here because they want to get in shape, maybe lose a few pounds like, uh, and off you go, right? That's what I call the known spoken. And when you talk to your customer and you say, is that what you'd like to do? And they're like, oh yeah, yep, yep. That, you know, that's it. You know, it's, it's the equivalent of, you know, if you were, um, you know, trying to sell them a piece of software and it lets say, you know, oh, we have a, a piece of uh, IT security software and we work with companies who are trying to increase their security and save a bit of money and gain some efficiencies. It's the thing that's automatic that your customer would smile, nod and agree to and say, yep, yep, we got that. And they're very willing to admit. Like, do you like to save money when you shop? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> don't like, please don't use that question. Don't no leading questions, right? I actually talk about the science behind why we get apprehensive. It's actually not to digress, but it's the same reason why you walk into a clothing store, let's say in the mall, yeah. and someone says, oh, "Excuse me, sir, can I help you find something?" What do you say? No thanks, just looking. Just looking, even if maybe you need help. Oh, if you I, say especially when I need help. Yes. That's what I say. That's the <laughs> reactance, right? That's the reactants. Yeah, you're yes. you're a little eager, and I don't want to like feed into you know basically give you consent to do all your sleazy sales things to me. Oh. So I'm going to back off. But then, so then back to our previous conversation, we get to this idea of what I call the known 
unspoken. So these are problems that your customers have, and you know they have them because you're the doctor. You see this all the time. But your customer may not admit, they may not speak these problems. So let's say, for example, I think the example I give is, I, you know, let's say I'm a middle-aged guy. This is a, non, a, a fictitious story. I go into the gym, and I'm there because I sense that my wife, being, and I love my wife, we've been married for many years, she may not find me as desirable as she once did. I told you this is a fictitious story, but imagine that's why I'm there. David, welcome to the future. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> but so if the trainer comes to me and says, oh, so hey, buddy, like, uh, what are you here for? I'm not telling the trainer that. Like, that's embarrassing. That's personal. It's the same way that now if I'm in the market for IT security software, and I'm talking to the IT security software rep, and the rep says, what brings you to my company today? And the reason I'm there is because I had a data breach. <laughs> I may not tell the salesperson that. Yeah, right? and you're about to lose your job and I'm your about career. To, yeah. And that's part of it. Like my my job is on the line, but that's why I'm there, right? <laughs> right. So the, the 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 I often tell people I say think about a secret that you have. You know, maybe it's, you know, uh, how much money you make or, you know, uh maybe uh, you know a disease that you had a battle with or a mental health issue or something, right? That you don't talk about to other people. Mm-hmm. And now imagine that you're being put in front of someone who's harboring a secret similar to yours, ask yourself, what would I do to get that person to open up to me, right? Like, that's what I'm talking about. It's the known, because we know about it, but it's unspoken, meaning they are not likely to divulge that to me, you know, until certain conditions are met. And then, of course, we have what I refer to as the unknown unspoken, which are problems that our customers have. And we know they have those problems, because we're the doctor, we see this all the time, but they don't know that they have these problems, or at least they're not top of mind. So they're not withholding them from us. They just don't know that this is a problem that they have and can speak to us about. And 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 your your intuition around the fact that if we can get really attuned to what those unknown or unspoken problems are, that's where as sellers and marketers, we begin to establish our value. It's like if I go into Best Buy to buy a TV and I ask the sales rep, tell me about, like, I, there's two TVs here. Which one is better? And they start reading the little cards that are underneath the TV. Right. You're like, I'm not an idiot. I could do that. I want you to tell me the thing that, I, that I'm not asking about, right? You know, it, it, that person might have knowledge. Well, you know what? Depending on the, where you're going to put this in the room or the size of the room or the, you know, do you have a, a, another, a DVD player from the same brand? You know, like these are the deeper questions that I wouldn't have thought to ask for because they weren't even on my radar. That's where as sellers and marketers, we establish our value and build trust. This uns- unknown, unspoken area just seems like it's less crowded and, uh, more attuned to a company that's doing more outbound sales. In other words, not necessarily waiting for somebody to th- realize they have they have a problem. It just, uh, it, but it's also the most difficult to to communicate. I would think. Well, you know, like yeah, you know, yes and no. You know, so for example, on my website, the the front line copy says, "Do you ever know? You ever wonder why you don't like talking to salespeople?" It doesn't, you know, it doesn't say, oh, like, it's not like, oh, it's awesome sales training. Like, I lead with the question. Now, I actually talk about in the book the power of leading with questions versus statements. Mm-hmm. But now someone is thinking, hold on a second. Do, do my customers not like talking to my sales team? Shoot, you know what? I don't like talking to sales. Maybe they don't like talking to my sales team. Oh, my gosh. All right. Now, I'm interested. So, these can be, you know, unspoken. Uh, you know, I'll... I'll lay one more thing on you on the unspoken front. I wrote an article, so I talk about it in the book, but I wrote an article in Harvard Business a couple of years ago, and it was on this topic of how younger salespeople 
can convert older customers. Oh, yeah. And, mm-hmm. and this was something I experienced. I, I would never have known to kind of pick this up if I had not experienced it. So imagine, so I'm at Salesforce, and I'm running small business sales for the Eastern U.S., and I have amazing, super enthusiastic reps in different cities. And in my New York City sales rep, shout out to the New York City crew, they always hustled the most. Tons of calls, lots of activity. But oftentimes, I would have reps that had lots of activity and no sales pipeline. I'm like, well, what? Well, I'm like, what's going on? Are you not calling people at the right time? Are you not like, you, do you not have enough accounts? And they say, no, no, no. We're, we we got all those things. We're calling all the right people. And and I would say, well, look, I just got to listen to your calls and and try to hear what's going on. Now imagine this: I'm on the calls. I'm listening to the conversations my my reps are having with the customers. And these are young sales reps, super young, enthusiastic calling on older, more experienced buyers whose job they've never done. And what I'm hearing in their voice, if I close my eyes and I say to myself, it sounds to me like like you're bothering the customer. That's what it sounds like. Yeah, That's like, the tone. I'm not worthy. Yeah. You're not worthy. Like, who, who are you that they should be listening to? And I said, you know what the customer's thinking? Who the hell is this kid? And what are they going to teach me about running my business? Mm-hmm. And so this concept I call experience asymmetry, so this experience imbalance and the, and the lack of conviction, the tone of voice, it's like when my kids come to me and they're about to hit me up for something, right? They want to lift to the mall. They want to download an app. Like I can tell immediately, right? If you have kids, just by the way they approach me, you know, it's like the dad, I'm like, no, the answer is no. I get defensive immediately. Well, my kids are in their twenties. And if I just get a phone call, I know it's coming. <laughs> That's right. You can feel the pit. You can feel the pitch. They it's don't coming. call unless there's something like that. Yeah. That's exactly it. Right. And so we, as human beings, we are very perceptive. We can feel the pitch coming. <laughs> and, so, and so this concept of experience asymmetry happens when you, I, you kind of don't believe that someone should be listening to you and you, maybe you don't even believe in your product. And now as the customer, I can tell. And so it's interesting when I go back to my, so this is, I told you that story just to give you an example of what I call the unknown unspoken. So now when I go to my customers and I say, Hey, you know what? Do you have a young, enthusiastic sales team? And they say, yeah, absolutely. I say, do you ever listen to their calls? You ever, you ever notice that sometimes they lack the passion and conviction Mm. to convert older, more experienced buyers whose job they've never done. And they say like, Shoot, yeah, we have that problem. Now, that's a problem I'm bringing them. Yes. I'm bringing them. They realize they're in pain now, but they didn't think to say that to me because it's just not on their radar. That's what I'm, when you can get to that unknown, unspoken in your business. And you, but by the way, you don't have to have the personal experience. You, I could train reps on how to manifest the unknown unspoken, right? But that's where you want to get to. That's what the unknown unspoken is. Yes. And it ties back to what I mentioned earlier. Don't sell solutions, sell uh, problems. So let me just ask one last question because we're running out of time. And years ago, uh, after I started my own firm, I, I realized, wow, I don't really know much about sales. And some might argue I still don't, but I started going to sales training. <clears throat> I went to uh, what's called Sandler, which is a pretty uh, well-known outfit. And uh, after a certain amount of time, I, I didn't have to pay anymore. I just kept going. And I've been going for like 15 years now. They cannot get rid of me. <laughs> and uh, so I still go about once, you know, once once a week. And this is a this whole, the, the very end of your book, you talk about this because I've had other kinds of sales training and I just, I love it. In fact, there was one author on the show, John Asher, who wrote a book called Close Deals Faster. And he talked about, he was one of those uh uh, engineers. And he talked about how he was, he loved taking classes in every kind of sales methodology. 
He just he couldn't get enough of it. Mm-hmm. And he, he, was, he was always going like from one to the other. And you write that one of the questions you're often asked is, what sales methodology do you think is best? And it was very interesting. And then on the next page, you write, despite my strong affinity for the science and empathy-based approaches outlined here, when asked for my favorite sales methodology, my position has always remained the same. I don't have one, and neither should you. David Premer, what the heck are you talking about? (laughs) Well, I go on to say, I said, look, if I asked you to make a lasagna, and you never made one before, you wouldn't go online and do a Google search, find the first recipe for lasagna, and just make that, right? You would look at a bunch of recipes, and you'd look at the ingredients that you have, and the the kitchen equipment, and and you kind of put everything together. And I, I believe that's the that's the case with sales training and sales methodologies as well. And we did, by the way, we did. I did Sandler for many years, you know, back in the Salesforce days. All of these things have something to teach us. They mm-hmm. absolutely do. Um, and the great thing about, um, uh, you know, sometimes people say methodology is that it helps create a common language. You know, when we, when we use this term or that term, we all know what we mean. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean that you have to fall in love with your sales. Don't fall in love with any methodology or sales tactic because what's going to happen is you're going to fall in love with it. You're going to keep spamming it and doing it over and over again. And sooner or later, it's going to more because times have changed or your product or something's changed and you're going to be stuck in that groove. And so my message to everyone is like, take the best from everything that you've learned, from every book that you've read. Like we are all kind of, you know, mathematical combinations of our experience set and so on. And we all, you know, we all end up being this kind of best of all worlds. So I say like, it's great, have a methodology to have that common language, but don't fall in love with a particular set of tactics and approaches, like figure out what works best for you. And I'll tell you, one of the biggest challenges that a lot of sellers and marketers have is that they end up learning tactics and a style that just does not jive with their kind of personal approach, right? And that's when you end well, like up- Like your with epiphany. The epiphany, exactly. It's like the Cobra Kai tactics where it's like, okay, someone's telling me no mercy and you know it's all about the competition, strike first and strike hard. And I'm like, but that's not how I am as a person. And if I try to go and execute those tactics, it's going to seem inauthentic. So I need to find things that align with, you know, what I do, what I believe. But you know, what I try to talk about in the book and what I'm a big fan of are just, you know, human feeling, undetectable tactics. And, and that works so well because they just align with the way we ourselves buy and the way our customers think. Mm, yes. So if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Well, look, you know, the, the concept of sell the way you buy, I think that's the one mantra if you just want to keep <laughs> repeating in your head. That's, that's a good fun. answer. Well, it's fine. I'm curious, actually, you know, the, on the journey of writing a book. You know, this was, I remember talking with a friend of mine in a, in a cafe a, a couple years back, actually a few years back now. And I said, I'm thinking of writing a book. And he said, you should totally do that. And he said, if you thought of a title, I'm like, well, I, I talk about this concept of sell the way you buy all the time. And he said, that, that's it. That's the title. And he's like, you should go out, buy the URL now. It's, that's it. And when I started writing the book about six months later, the publisher said, oh, do you have a working title? I said, no, oh, you know, it's this one. Now, working titles don't always hold until the book is done, but this one did. And, oh. and it was because, you know, I, I, I talk about this so much in my practice, and my training, because sell the way you buy says two things. There's the empathetic element, which is just don't use tactics that wouldn't work on you. That's mm-hmm. the, like the golden rule. But then also be really curious about the pathways by which people make purchasing decisions so you can align your sales motion that way. So sell the way you buy is a great mantra to take away. Agreed. And I have to be honest, I've had, some training from other places as well in sales. And 
we were encouraged to do certain things. And I just remember thinking, I wouldn't want somebody doing this to me. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I, I saw the title of your book. It was like, yes. <laughs> you see, it was the unspoken. Uh, there you go. What was it? Uh, so what is one thing a listener could do today to start <laughs> implementing one of the many ideas that we've either talked about or that's in the book? Well, I always think about kind of go back to the beginning, like a sales and marketing interaction. I think you hit it on the head also when you talked about websites, right? Because you could go to, you know, I say, go to the Deloitte Fast 50 companies, 500 companies, look at their website and tell me in 30 seconds, a minute, what they do. Oh, what an indictment that was. I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> and it's tough, right? Because we get all wrapped. Because look, we live in the world of our products and services all the time. We get so wrapped up in them and yeah. we they just become second nature to us. We don't often take a step back. So I say the one thing a listener could do today, because we've talked about, we talk about messaging and discovery and objection handling and negotiation, all these kinds of things. Start at the beginning. When I ask you the question, what do you do? What do you say? Like really focus on that. And I talk a lot about the the tactics in the book, but just have a good answer to that question of what is it that you do? An answer that lets the other person and makes the other person lean in and say, oh, that's, that's, tell me more. Tell me more about this. Yes. And and it's a brilliant part of the book. And actually I had to laugh extra because you said uh, there's something about how when you were working for these different uh, startups, someone would ask your mom what you do, and she would say, I think it has something to do with computers. And it's something in computers. My late mother, you know, uh, my two brothers had jobs that she understood, and right up to her dying day, I think she was saying things like, now, now what is it you do? <laughs> Now, are, you, That's right. are, are you the client or do, do you do the pitch? That's right. <laughs> it, was, it was adorable. But I, when I read that, I thought, oh man, once again, mom was right. <laughs> can you come fix my printer? Is that something you can do? Right, <laughs> right, yeah. right, right. So what books have inspired your work and career? You've mentioned uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, but any others? Oh yeah, thinking fast and slow. Uh, I love Dan Pink. I'm a big Dan Pink fan, so I love. Yeah, he endorsed his, it on the on the uh, cover here. Well, that's of one of the all is human. Yeah, it's one of the. I mean, I've been a big fan of his for a long time, and I, I love to sell as human because you know it talks about the not just the tactics but the science as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the other book I'm a fan of is a is a slightly older book uh, by Robert Cialdini and friends. It's not an influence. It's called Yes: Fifty Scientifically Proven Ways to Be Persuasive, mm. and um, it's it's kind of a, a, a book of fifty short chapters that talk about all of these like little social science experiments. But I'm a sucker for the science of everyday things. Like when when I can learn something that I've always taken for granted, and I'm like, oh yeah. That, that's why that happens, you know? And so, yes, this was actually, it was the first book. It was actually given to us uh, by one of the investors in my third startup who was a big philanthropist and big into reading. He's like, oh, here, here, here read this book. And it was the first book for me, I think it was you know, 2008, I want to say. It, it kind of put sales and science kind of on the same level. And all these like little interesting little persuasive tactics, marketing tactics, sales tactics, um, from how you buy things at the grocery store to why you know, certain uh, servers and restaurants get, get greater tips, all of these little subtle nuances. So I love, uh, I love, yes, I love to sell as human uh, and thinking fast and slow, among others. Yes. And actually, you mentioned an author I interviewed um, in your book on page 224 for those playing the home game, uh, <laughs> David Hoffeld, author of The Science of Selling. And that was a similar... Uh, I, I loved that book, and obviously you liked it, and it was uh, yet 
more affirmation of, oh, that's why I do that. Or that's why oh, yeah. I'm a customer. You know, that's, uh, that's terrific. So at marketingbookpodcast.com, we'll include links to everything linkable, uh, like sellthewayyoubuy.com and your LinkedIn profile and your cerebral selling uh, website. And uh, I hope that, and we'll also include links to all the books that you've mentioned. And I hope that listeners uh, will reach out to you and thank you for being a guest on the show, particularly if there's something you said that uh, maybe has uh, encouraged you to, to think differently. And uh, for you, dear listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on the show notes link. The name of the book is Sell the Way You Buy, a modern approach to sales that actually works even on you. The author is David Primer. David, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me, Douglas. This was, uh, this was amazing. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who have left an iTunes review, let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message indicating you're a listener so I won't mistake you for a spammer and ignore you, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. And remember the words of the entrepreneur and author Jim Rohn, who said, formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. 